Well, today I want to turn to Galatians chapter 6. If you have been reading through Galatians, you'll notice that starting in what we call chapter 6, it's really what a monk did in the 13th century in dividing the Bible into chapters, but you will notice that it's a pretty good place to put a chapter division because there's sort of a subject change and a tone change starting in chapter 6. And actually, if you go through the book of Galatians, there's almost a progression there. There is a progression. Paul starts out, does he not, by warning them with regards to the error that has gripped that congregation. Another gospel, he called it. That's how serious this was for the Galatians. And so he approaches them right where they are in error, and he begins to correct them. We went over a lot of that. He goes into the Bible, into the Old Testament, and he brings out and identifies why they are in error. And he brings into view God's true purpose, and we've covered a lot of that ground. Then, starting in chapter 5, he begins to, rather than so much correct error, he begins to put the truth before them. And isn't that how God does? He convicts you of sin, he convicts you of error, he stops you in your tracks, he says, no, not this, but this. And in chapter 5, he does that. He tells them what it really means to walk in the Spirit, what the real essence of spiritual life is. Gave a few messages on that. But then in chapter 6, it's almost like he takes the next step, and he begins to talk about how this is supposed to translate into relationships, how this is supposed to translate into the body life. He began to do that toward the end of chapter 5. And in chapter 6, at least at the start here, he gets into it full tilt. And if we begin to read in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we can see that. He says there, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual must restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering or taking heed unto yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now isn't that interesting how Paul gives this direction to start Galatians 6, when actually, if you really think about it, that's exactly what he's been doing for five chapters? Because the Galatians had been overtaken by a fault, hadn't they? Another gospel. And he has been trying to restore them. Now, anytime you read direction, such as we just read in Galatians 6.1 in the Bible, and certainly there are tons of corrections and commands and instruction along this same line in the Bible. Every epistle that Paul writes tends to be to some degree corrective in nature. Every one of them are. And, uh, you know, at some point it gets to that if, not it, if it is not the whole point of the epistle. Galatians, it was the whole point of the epistle. But have you ever noticed that in order to properly understand a correction such as this or an instruction that we need to restore, all of that has to be based on something. There has to be a foundation there that Paul is basing his instruction upon. For example, 
He's saying if somebody is overtaken by a fault, you that are spiritual need to restore that person back. How many see that the foundation and the premise upon that uh, that this is all based on is that Paul is assuming that they that are spiritual are going to restore this person back to the truth. In other words, Paul is assuming that the restoration that is going to take place is going to be back to the truth. Now, what am I getting at here? Here's what I'm getting at. Can we see how a group or a church that itself is already in error as a group could take this scripture and grab a hold of one of its members and claim to be restoring that member back to the truth when actually all they're doing is bringing that member back into error because the group itself is in error. Give you a couple other examples that we could draw from the Bible. Remember the uh, scripture from Hebrews 10 uh, where it says, Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. How many recognize that there isn't a cult on the planet that doesn't use that scripture to get their members to come to church? And what I'm getting at is, do we actually believe that, that those words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to not neglect to assemble yourselves together, do we actually believe that in context those words apply to a bad place to go to church? I would submit that if it's a bad place to go to church, if it's a group that's in error, if what is being taught there isn't the true gospel, God's not going to say don't neglect to assemble. He's going to say disintegrate. Don't go there. In fact, he even said to the Corinthians, did he not, that when you meet together, it's for the worse, not for the better. And so when we read verses like this in Galatians... We need to keep it in context. There's an assumption built in. I have been in groups and I have known groups where the leadership operates almost like a Gestapo. Where if somebody gets out of line with the particular religious agenda of that church or group, the leadership will jump on those people they will grab a hold of a verse like Galatians 6.1 and they will say the Lord has commanded us to get you back in line. And really what it is, it's nothing but the blind leading the blind, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. That's all that it is. That's why Paul says here, you that are spiritual need to restore. He's assuming the people he's appointing to do this know the Lord, know what they're doing. If they don't know the Lord and they're not right with God, the leadership, then none of this works. In fact, the problem is a much deeper problem that needs to be resolved before verses like this can even apply. And so in that we see not only the necessity for obeying a command like this, we see that you've got to get at the root of this thing and make sure that the foundation and the root is right. And what I want to do for today is I want to get back to some of that root. Because unless we understand what God's mind is for a church, unless we understand what the church is and what God's trying to do, we cannot possibly understand what a verse like this means in, in the proper context. There's a lot of people that think to restore somebody 
as it describes here in Galatians 1, means to police somebody. It isn't. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. First thing I want to do today, though, is that I do want to just briefly go through this verse. And I want to talk about what it really means. And then we're going to see and tie that in uh, and see it in a proper context as we begin to unfold what God's mind is for a church. You'll notice the wording here in Galatians 6.1 as we look at this. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. I looked this entire verse up this last week in the Greek language because I thought it surely had to be significant the way that it was worded, and in fact it is. What the wording here in the Greek means is that this is somebody that is taken off guard ignorantly by some deception or some sin. Now we need to understand that and keep that in mind because that is different than somebody who knowingly and deliberately goes out and sins. This is somebody who just through immaturity, ignorance, or whatever, is, as it says here in Galatians, they are overtaken by a fault. It isn't that they run out and grab a sin or a fault to themselves and embrace it and say, I want this. No, they are overtaken. They slip into this thing ignorantly and through inexperience. And that doesn't mean they're fully without responsibility, but it simply means that it's not a deliberate walking away from Jesus. How many of us can relate to being overtaken by a fault? And then later we wake up and we say, gee, I got off the track here, and thank God the Holy Spirit convicted me. We we can all be guilty of that. And this is simply saying that there are times and places where you have to help your brethren when they do that. Because maybe you know better, and they don't. Now, if a man be overtaken in a fault, it says, they which are spiritual ought to restore such a one. Now, I believe this is the key phrase, really, in this verse. To what are we to restore another? To our religious agenda? Are we to restore them to some kind of a religious pattern that we demand people follow if they're really a Christian? If you get what I'm saying. No. We're to restore them back to God. Because is it not true that if there is a real problem, that's what they've fallen from? Communion and a relationship with God. I have to tell you that if we're out of a communion and a relationship with God, it doesn't matter what kind of religious hoops we're jumping through. We're not going to be walking in truth and growing. And if we are in a communion and a relationship with God, we're going to have our faults and make our missteps. But isn't it a fact that God will then have access to us because we're right with him by faith? And so this whole thing pivots on a person's one-on-one personal relationship with God. This isn't a matter of me, if I'm a pastor or a person who, like Paul says here, who is spiritual, this isn't a matter of me cloning people to be like me. This isn't a matter of me going around 
dictating that people do this or that because I happen to think those are God's demands. No, this is about me getting people into personal business with Jesus for themselves. I've spoken in the past about the relationship between the vertical relationship that each one of us have with Christ directly and how that relates to the horizontal relationship that we have to each other. You and I can't fix the vertical relationship that we each have with Christ by simply doing right things horizontally with each other. And one of the examples I gave, I think when I mentioned this in another sermon, was that of the vine and the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, you must abide in me. Well, there are entire groups and churches that consist of a whole bunch of branches abiding in each other, celebrating that fact, thinking they're hot stuff, and there isn't a one of them that's hooked up to the vine. You can build an entire kingdom, an entire church, an entire religious system that consists nothing more than professing Christians abiding in each other and doing religious things and jumping through religious hoops with laws, rules, and regulations and standards. And none of it's hooked up to the living Christ. And I'll tell you, a system like that can work. Never think that unity among Christians means a thing. It doesn't. I know that's a crazy statement to some people, but it doesn't. You can have absolute, wonderful, solid unity in error. That's what cults have. I often make a joke. It's not really funny, but it's true. That if you want to find a group of people that have great unity, just go over to the Jehovah Witnesses. They have great unity. You know how they preserve it? If you disagree with what they're doing, they kick you out. That's unity. But it's all in error. They're all a bunch of branches hooked up to each other, abiding in each other, agreeing with each other totally about what the truth is they say. And it's wrong. That's unity. Hitler had unity. You want to talk about unity and the wrong thing? There's probably one of the most recent examples. Now what we see in all of this is that all of this body life and all of these things and all of these commands, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, none of them mean anything unless it's in the truth. Unless it's in Christ. You take away the truth, you can have unity and error, and everybody will go down the drain together smiling. And there are people everywhere just like that. I have known personally people who have celebrated their own glory and their own unity. And from start to finish, top to bottom, right down to the hearts of the individuals, it's been error and destructive. It's tore lives apart and destroyed and shipwrecked faith. And they think they're walking with the Lord. You can walk into groups and churches everywhere today on the planet and because everybody is saying the same thing, Paul says, I want you to say the same thing. And because everybody has the same mind, and Paul says, I want you to have the same mind. And because everybody checks and balances each other, and Paul even says something about that, they have a tight unit, and they're happy together. And I have known places that are just nothing but 
a bed of darkness because it's not in truth. Which is why I'm saying all these words in the Bible, same mind, Paul says. I want you to say all the same thing. What do you think he means? Anything? No, it's all predicated on having the mind of Christ and the truth. And if that's not there, nothing works. Now, when Paul begins to go through this stuff here and says, if any man is overtaken by a fault, you which are spiritual need to restore such a one, can we see how automatically that's predicated on the fact that the person has fallen out of a relationship or a communion with Christ, gotten into something less than that, and the people who are to restore are supposed to be right with God, and the restoration is back again into the truth, not as defined by me, or by a congregation, or by a cult, but it's a restoration back into the truth according to what God says the truth is. Now, horizontal and vertical comes into play in the sense of the word that if my vertical relationship one-on-one with God is right, and we can go to an extreme on this just to make a point. If there was nobody else on the planet at all, or in the body of Christ that was right with God except you, God would hold you responsible for that vertical relationship. Because you've got to go to God. You have to know personally Jesus, don't you? Now, the moment your vertical relationship with God is right, can we see how that equips you to help others. You can't be equipped any other way. If your vertical relationship in mine is not right with God, how could I possibly be equipped to help others horizontally? No, if I'm wrong with God and I believe error and I'm off the track, I'm just going to spread the disease. Is all that I'm going to do. So, If nothing else is true, what Paul is saying here is that those who know Jesus and are right with God vertically need to help those who aren't quite there yet or have been overtaken with a fault. And that each vertical relationship can help maintain the horizontal. Now churches get into great trouble and error. As I mentioned, if you try to solve the horizontal first, without the vertical because you're not hooked up to the vine in that case and we'll just make clones of each other because Jesus won't be the vine in which we abide and so Paul says if a man in your midst be overtaken or fall into a a fault or an error you that are spiritual need to restore such a one back to a relationship with God so they can have the vertical If everybody's got a vertical relationship with God that's right, how many see that's fellowship? What's the word in the Bible most commonly used for fellowship other than the word fellowship? Communion. Communion is a having in common. That's what the word means. Well, if you have Christ, I have Christ, the third person has Christ, how many see we all have Christ in common, and that is fellowship? And that's going to result in a horizontal that is a communion. But if nobody has Christ but everybody has error, you're going to have a lot of communion in error because it's not in the truth. 
Now what we see in all of this that's really built into this verse, and we're going to see more of this as we go along in this subject matter, what is the purpose of the church? I've got really four of those I'm going to mention today out of Galatians 6, 1 in brief. And I'm going to turn to Colossians 1.27 to mention the first purpose of the church. And these aren't necessarily in order of importance. I think they're all equally as important. You can't really separate the one from the other. Paul in Colossians here is talking about the supremacy and centrality of Jesus. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, he gives what I have often called the definition of Christianity. He says, God wants to make known to you the mystery that is now being unfolded among the Gentiles. And that mystery, that revelation, in other words, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Christianity. There's a lot in that. Included in that is how you become a Christian. Included in that certainly is what the impact is of Christ in you. All of that's Christianity. But at the core of it all, Christianity is Christ in you. And you'll notice that last fragment, hope of glory. In other words, Christ in us isn't just for now, is it? It's the hope of glory. He is in us. So that's the definition of Christianity, or if you will, if you want to know what the definition is of a Christian, that is it. A Christian is somebody in whom Christ dwells. Now contrast that over and against some traditional definitions of Christianity. And in various parts of the country, this is more prominent than others. Some people think the definition of a Christian is somebody that's a member of a church. When I pastored a church in Massachusetts, I preached a sermon on this, and I was amazed afterwards how many people came up to me and said that they had never heard before that being a member of a church didn't make them a Christian. Now that may be astounding to some of us, but there are people in churches today that are just that blind to the truth. And they were astounded to hear that you're not even saved if you don't have Christ in you. Because they had been so blinded by tradition. So Christ in us, the hope of glory, is Christianity. Now, if we read the next verse, we'll find out what the goal of all this is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul says, whom we preach. Warning, and really the word there is to put in mind, in other words, to make everybody aware. Whom we preach, putting everybody in mind of this and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every person mature in Christ. And he says, whereunto we labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So just from this verse, what does Paul say the purpose is of ministry, of the church, of Christ in us? To present every person mature in Christ. 
And we can certainly see that Galatians 6.1, where you restore someone back, is under that end eventually. So if you want to know the reason why, from this passage, that the church exists, that ministry exists, that the Holy Spirit works through people in ministry and so forth, in the body life, It is so that every single one of us can be mature in Christ. How many see again the horizontal, in this case, working through the means of the vertical to to, uh, produce more vertical? In other words, if I'm right with God, you're right with God, John Doe is right with God, all of that should result in ministry to help other people be right with God and mature in Christ so that it can grow and grow and grow to get even more people mature in Christ. So just in other words, as individuals grow in Christ, is it not true that a body of believers are to grow in Christ together? But it all goes back to Christ in the individuals. Just to show you how far off the track this can get, talked to an individual not too long ago on the phone that had been set free by the Lord from out of a cult. And this cult was like a Gestapo. And it's been my experience that where churches exist like that and are like a cult, and there's all this control, they have a tendency to come up with these nice little snappy phrases that they use to keep people in line. And one of them that they had in this church to demand that the people be there, stay there, and so forth, was God has an address, and His address is this church for you. That was one of the things they said there. Well, first of all, that's a lie. Let's get that settled, first of all. We just read what God's address is for you and I. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if we want to know what God's address is, it's right here inside of each and every one of us. Now I say it that way to get at something having to do with church. Have we recognized, first of all, that when we come to church Sunday morning, we're not traveling from outside of God's zip code into God's zip code, coming to church so we can meet God once a week, and get a booster shot for, so we can get through another week. In other words, we're not coming from home to God's address and getting a booster shot so that we can live another week in Christ. What we're really supposed to be doing if Christianity is Christ in us is we're supposed to be bringing Christ with us to church because He's already in us. And when we come together, we're supposed to be bringing our relationship and fellowship with Christ together to edify each other. So church can re-energize you. It should make you feel stronger spiritually. But it's not because church is God's address. It's because that when Christians get together and all of us are vertically hooked up to the Lord properly, there should be a ministry. But it's not because 
Christ isn't in you until you get to church. It really is because he's there before you come to church, and then when lots of people get together that have Christ in them, ministry happens. And that horizontal is strengthened. And I could go down a list of all kinds of aberrations on the truth about what Christianity is that I've encountered, and some of them would probably make your hair stand on end. For instance, I'll give you one more. When I lived in California, I belonged to a home fellowship group, and after a while I recognized there was grave error being taught there. And so wanting to get at the root of the matter, rather than just guess at things, I went to the leadership there. This was actually after quite a few years. So I knew these people, and I sat down with this woman who was basically running this group. And she was, whether she wanted to admit it or not, controlling people's lives on every level. And I was the bad guy because I wasn't going to have that. So I was labeled the rebel. And I went to her and asked her a very direct question. I said to her, if I believe that God is directing me in one way, but you say, as the leader of this group, that he's directing me in another way, who am I supposed to listen to? Pretty blunt question, isn't it? And if you want to solve the truth about spiritual authority and what God has to say, all you got to do is ask that question. You get the answer to that question, it'll, it'll set a lot of ducks in order. Well, of course, she answered... I was supposed to listen to her. She says, you're supposed to trust. Now get this, get this answer because it is thoroughly diabolical. If you just think about what this does to a person that hears this. She says, you're supposed to trust the Holy Spirit in me as your leader. Now, if you're not on your toes and you don't know the Lord, what that's going to do is it's going to make you feel guilty if you don't trust the Holy Spirit in her. And, of course, we all want to trust the Holy Spirit, don't we? thing is, God has never said anywhere in Scripture that we're supposed to, quote, trust the Holy Spirit in other people. And the reason he never says that is there isn't anybody that's incapable of disobeying the Holy Spirit. No one is exempt from that possibility. What we are supposed to do is trust the Holy Spirit, period. But am I supposed to rely on the fact that you are yielding to the Holy Spirit? What did Paul say about stuff like that? One verse settles it. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Built into that is the implication that if I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. This lady would have said, had it been worded this way, yeah, you follow me as I follow Christ, but I'll also tell you when I'm following Christ, which is always. That's what she would have said. In other words, you're to follow me always because I'm always following Christ. Well, the end of that was that I didn't take the bait and I left that group. And of course, then I was one that fell away. And this gets back again to Galatians 
she would have said, had she wanted to pull out Galatians 6.1, that I was somebody that was overtaken by a fault and that she was a spiritual person that wanted to restore me. See how that can be misapplied? The truth is she was deceived and a false leader. And there's a lot of them out there today. And Paul says you need to flee from those people. You need to withdraw from those people. And you need to get back into business with God vertically. But anyway, those are a couple of examples how it is so important to recognize that Christianity is Christ in you. One other thing, I'm not going to get through all these four today, by the way, of definitions of Christianity. I'm probably not going to get past this first one. Another example of how it is so necessary and vital that we see that we have a personal one-on-one relationship with Christ and that all ministry is under that end. Today on television, and you're going to hear more and more and more about this, there is being taught a false doctrine that I guess we could call the doctrine of spiritual impartation. People are teaching that they can impart to you what you need to walk with Christ. They're teaching that they can impart to you a spiritual gift. And they quote the one verse, I think it's from Romans, where Paul says, I can hardly wait to come and visit you that I may impart to you a spiritual gift. Bad translation. All the word means is share. In other words, Paul had spiritual gifts and he wanted to share that with them. Not give it to them, but share what he had from the spiritual gift. The Bible teaches that the spiritual gifts belong to who? The Holy Spirit. I can't give you a spiritual gift. And you can't give me one. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit distributes the gift as He pleases to those He pleases to distribute them to. And so... I cannot, I could be the holiest man on planet. I could be absolutely right with God. I can't impart to you something. Now what I can do, which is really the same thing I've been saying today all along, is I can teach by example, by word. You can do this too and get you into business to the one who can give you the spiritual gifts. See how it all comes back to Christ, to presenting each man mature in Christ. I want to tell you something. The number one job of New Testament ministry, if I'm a New Testament minister, the number one job is to make myself as useless as possible because I have so strengthened other people by getting them into business with Christ for themselves. Now, there's always going to be a need for ministry, for edification, for help, and all those kind of things. But any church that has developed a pattern where the members are more and more reliant upon people instead of upon Christ, that's bad news. Paul says we want to present each man mature in Christ. And so there are all kinds of substitutes for this and errors that can happen. And this impartation is one of them. And what that really does, and again, it's diabolical. Think about it for a second. If you have to come to me to, to be imparted, 
spiritually with whatever you need to live, guess who that makes you reliant on? Guess who that ties you to? Guess who that makes the center of attention? It's all man, isn't it? But if the minister is saying, listen, I can't give you a spiritual gift. I can't impart to you anything. But what I can do is I can tell you the truth about who can. And a strong church is where each member is strong and mature in Christ. And that's the job of ministry. Not to get you to rely upon the pastor forever. Pastor is supposed to be the person that directs you to the master. I make a joke sometimes. Ever see one, you ever go to one of these foreign countries where there's a tour guide and they take you around? I was in Jerusalem one time and they, there was these tour guides they have over there. They're professionals. They train for this. And, you know, you're pretty much at his mercy because you don't know where to go. And so you're following this tour guide. Think about this for a second. How smart would it be, or what sense would it make, if the tour guide took you up on the, mount, the Temple Mount and he had you walk in a circle around him and pay attention to him? If that tour guide made himself the center of the tour, wouldn't that be dumb? Well, don't some ministers do that? In fact, in Christianity for the last 2,000 years, there's been a pattern where the center has become a minister. The center has become a teacher. The center of the Christian life has become a thing called church. And it's all about a thing or a movement. Today you hear a lot about a thing called revival. And, and it becomes things to join. Things to plug into. Things that you have to associate yourself with to be in on what God's doing. It's all deception. You and I have Christ in us. How far do we need to look to get into business with God? And New Testament ministry will tell us that. So the tour guide doesn't make himself the center of attention for the tour, does he? The tour guide shows you what you came to see. In other words, the job of ministry isn't to make you focus on him or the ministry or the church. The job of ministry is to cause the focus to be on what everybody wants to see, namely Jesus. And isn't that what it means to be a servant of God? And somebody who is faithful over another man's possessions? In other words, all of this belongs to God. The people belong to God. We are bought with a price. And so we're to do God's will and God's bidding. Isn't it funny how easy it is to get out of focus on these things? We ask the question, for instance, what should ministry do? Or what should a church be doing? Why is that confusing? All that we need to do is read, for instance, in the New Testament and find out what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when he came. Remember those seven things. 
from John 14, 15, and 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There were seven of them. I gave a series on that a year ago or so. Well, just do the math. If that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be doing when he comes, and the Holy Spirit is here, isn't that what we should be doing if we say that our ministry is spirit-led? It's as simple as can be, and it's all about Jesus, isn't it? It all brings Jesus into view helps people get into personal business with Him. So that, not so that we can be independent, we get into personal business with Jesus so we can help others get into personal business with Jesus. It's all into the building and edification of the body. What does God say through Paul in the epistles that the goal of the church is? We just read it to present each man mature in Christ. Shouldn't that be the goal of a church? Now again, none of it works if we don't know what it means to be mature in Christ. If I think what it means to be mature in Christ is to keep laws, rules, and regulations as a legalist, if I think that's maturity in Christ, then that's going to be my goal, to make everybody do that to be mature in Christ. And it's all going to be off the track, isn't it? That's why this thing ties in to the absolute essential of knowing the truth. You have to know the truth. You have to know Jesus in order to be able to be on the same page with God. So what is the church? Church is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or, to use some of the language of Paul, the church are those who are in Christ. Isn't it funny how God takes it from both angles? We are in Christ, but Christ is in us. How many see a oneness there? And yet he also says what? We are all one in Jesus Christ. Again, add up all the verticals. You don't get exclusivity. You add up all the verticals and you get one body that is unified in the right thing all one in Christ. I want to turn to try to close out this thought for today, this first point about what the church is, Christ in us, to Ephesians chapter 4. To a great extent, a restatement of Colossians 1.27 as to the purpose of the church Ephesians 4.11, Paul's going to mention the ministry gifts. And you'll notice that in that verse, 4.11 Ephesians, it says, and God gave. How many have ever recognized that a pastor, if he's called of God, and in this case the apostles back in the first century, that those offices were not the product of a seminary education? Not putting that down, incidentally. I've been there, done that. But it says God gave. In other words, if someone really is or was an apostle, if somebody really is a pastor, then they are that because God gave them that calling. 
and made them that. Now, there are things you can involve yourself in to develop that. You have to know your Bible. The Bible says somebody that's in the ministry needs to be apt to teach. Well, that can't happen unless you study your Bible. And if you want to go to seminary to do it, fine. I did. But the point is, it has to be God who initiates these things and gives these gifts as he pleases. I can't decide, I think I'd like to be a pastor because it seems like a good profession. It doesn't work. In fact, it'll turn disastrous. So we need to keep that in mind. Again, who is building the church? Is it God or is it us? It says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. Why? I'm going to recognize this as being exactly what Colossians 1.28 said. He gave all these gifts for the maturing of the saints under the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a mature man. I don't know how much more clear God could be about the fantastic purpose that he has for his people in the church and why we're all here. Now somebody's going to say, well, what about the lost? We've got to go save the lost. Well, gift of evangelists is right here. The church has the commission of preaching the gospel to the lost. But once the lost are saved, then what? Well, then these verses kick into gear as to what the purpose is for people who are saved in the church. That we may be presented mature in Christ. Like Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel, and you'll notice in that passage, it isn't just to get people saved, it is to make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a taught one. That's what the word means. We need to learn Christ, and be taught of him, and to grow in him. And so, the bottom line is that Christianity, the church, are individuals in whom Christ dwells. Personally and individually. How many know that when you walk into a church congregation, no matter how great that place is, that Christ doesn't sort of come in you while you're at church, and then when you leave church, Christ doesn't exit you? Like I said earlier, you bring Christ to church. And you take him home with you. That's how we live when we're not here. And so Christianity at the basis, church at the basis, is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Most people probably are familiar with the fact that the name church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ekklesia. And that word ekklesia means called out ones. And when you hear that, it's easy to continue to focus on what you're called out of, which is the world, sin, and the old creation. We're, we're called out of all of that, aren't we, when we become Christians? But it's easy to forget who we're called to. Christians are those who are called out of 
the old creation unto Jesus Christ. And, of course, included in that would be all the purposes of God and the church. So Christianity, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that is the foundation of what the church is all about. Like Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. What rock? The rock of himself. The personal revelation of Christ to each believer, as Peter had that day when Jesus made that statement, upon this rock I will build my church. So God wants to build his church. He wants Christ in each individual unto a collective ministry that each person might be presented mature in Christ. Now, that's the first point, and it's all I'm going to cover today, that really stands behind Galatians 6.1. How many see that once we understand that that's the purpose of God, Christ in the individual, growing in Christ, then now when we read Galatians 6.1, we know what the people that are being spoken about here are falling away from and what they need to restore be restored back to it is a fellowship and a focus upon Jesus that he may have his will and glory in a life and that we may grow to be mature in him <laughs>